Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, Je Lord Jesus did many miracles as he walked upon this earth. According to the testimony of John himself in the last verse of his gospel, if all the miracles and the deeds of the Lord Jesus were written in the book, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. However, the apostle John in his gospel only tells us of seven miracles, only seven. These seven support the purpose of John's writing. That's why he chose these seven, for they support the purpose of his writing, which he tells us in John chapter 20, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, John the Baptist had already baptized the Lord Jesus. And having done so, John the Baptist could bear witness that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. For God the Father had made that known to him through a voice from heaven and through the Holy Spirit descending as a dove resting on the Lord Jesus. God the Father himself had made known to John the Baptist that this very ordinary man, yet sinless man, Jesus, is his only begotten Son. Now, after his baptism, the Lord Jesus began to gather his disciples around about him. He had called Andrew and Simon Peter, Philip, and fourthly, Nathaniel. Nathaniel had professed Jesus to be the Son of God through the mere fact that Jesus saw him sitting under a fig tree well before meeting Nathaniel. That was evidence enough to Nathaniel of who this man Jesus really was. And so he declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. The other disciples, although they also followed the Lord Jesus, had not yet publicly professed their faith in the Lord Jesus. Perhaps they just followed the Lord Jesus like they followed John the Baptist. However, through this first miracle of changing water into wine, the Lord Jesus begins to reveal his glory and so also moves his disciples by the grace of God to put their faith in him. And so we see here an ever-widening circle of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, brother and sister, may proclaim to you the word of God this afternoon as follows. The Lord Jesus reveals his glory so that we might believe in him and enjoy eternal life. I will say three points, the wedding, the sign, and the faith. So first of all, the Lord Jesus reveals his glory so that we might believe in him and enjoy eternal life, the wedding. Now, we should know, brothers and sisters, that there are critics who say that this miracle of the, that the Lord Jesus did is totally unnecessary. They label this miracle as, as a luxury miracle, for no one is healed by it. They declare this miracle as a, a purposeless expedition of supernatural power, perhaps because Jesus was pushed into that predicament by his mother, to which he could not do anything but respond in the way he did. Further, the critics add, was it really necessary to supply at a wedding feast such an abundance of wine? Sure, the host was spared an embarrassment of lack of wine. But really, can it honestly be said that this miracle had a long-lasting benefit on those who were present? However, brothers and sisters, those who ask such questions miss the point of miracles of the Lord Jesus 
But none of the miracles of the Lord Jesus were simply kind actions to alleviate human distress and nothing more. No, they are, as the Apostle John calls them here in his gospel, signs. Signs which display the glory of the Lord Jesus, revealing him and bearing witness to him that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, the one who reveals the amazing grace and the redeeming love of the Father. And brothers and sisters, it is then very significant that the one who invites us to the marriage feast of the Lamb on the last day should perform his first sign, his first miracle, at a marriage feast. For the changing of water into wine at a marriage feast is the first sign that the Lord Jesus did when he entered into his public ministry. Now, so the Apostle John begins by telling us the time. He says, on the third day. Perhaps the intent is on the third day after the Lord Jesus told Nathaniel that he would see greater things. Lord Jesus would then not leave his disciples in limbo, but immediately proceeds to reveal to them who he truly is. And then we are told that the wedding took place in Canaan, at Cana in Galilee. Undoubtedly, there were more weddings that took place in the land. However, we are particularly told that this wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Even the place may not have meant much to us if it was not for the remark that Nathaniel made in the previous chapter when he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? For you see, Nazareth was also in Galilee. In fact, Cana is a small village not far from Nazareth. So this first miracle takes place in an insignificant place, in an area which had commonly been known as useless with respect to offering anything to the Jewish nation. And yet we are told that this wedding took place in Cana of Galilee, not in the city of Jerusalem of Judea. You see, not only is the Lord Jesus despised and rejected in his own and knew him not, but also the Lord calls his own, not foremost from the heroes and the kings of this world, but those who are downcast, those who are humbled, those who are contrite of heart, who feel rejected and dejected. And then we are told that Jesus and the disciples had also been invited to the wedding feast. Notice John does not say, Jesus, his mother, and his disciples. And yet we know that Jesus' mother was also present at the wedding feast. You see, the focus is clearly to be on the Lord Jesus. And Jesus' disciples, who would further the cause of the Lord Jesus in the near future, Mother Mary had done her part. The focus is no longer on her. Now, this is a wedding feast. At a Jewish wedding feast, there must be lots of wine. But the rabbis always said, no wine, no rejoicing. And indeed, Psalm 104 also says, wine gladdens the heart of man. And what more reason to be glad at a wedding feast than to see the light on the faces of the bride and the bridegroom who are united in holy matrimony, the most beautiful of all relationships that God created here on this earth. But we are told there's a, immediately a predicament. There was no more wine. How is that possible? Not enough wine at a wedding feast. 
That would be utter shame to the wedding party, particularly to the bridegroom and the bride, if there was not enough wine. It was of utmost importance at the, at the wedding feast. There was lots of food and lots of drink, particularly wine, because wine gladdens the heart of man. And this was, after all, also a glad occasion. And yet, brothers and sisters, it would not have been too difficult to run out of wine. For remember, the wedding feast in those days often lasted a whole week. Thus, a lot of wine would have been consumed night after night and probably day after day as well. Now, the mother of the Lord Jesus noticed the predicament at this wedding feast. Perhaps Mother Mary was a close relative to one of the wedding party, so she was alert to this need. But Mother Mary also knew a solution to the problem. She believed that her son could solve the problem. And so Mother Mary goes up to the Lord Jesus and says to him, they have no wine. Now, we don't know exactly what Mary expected from the Lord Jesus. Perhaps she was not sure either. What Mary did know was her son was not an ordinary man. Thirty years had passed since the angel Gabriel had told her that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit and bear God's own son. Thirty years had passed since the shepherd had told her about the glorious song of the angels, how they sang about the glory of God and about the peace among men among whom God's favor rests. Mary pondered all these things in her heart. She pondered about those words of, of the prophetess Anna and, about the, what, and what the devout man Simeon spoke of. She pondered about the death of all those little baby boys of Bethlehem on account of her little baby boy. She pondered about what her son said when they first took him along to Jerusalem. Don't you know I had to be in my father's house? Yes, her son was not an ordinary son. That she knew. And he continued to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Her son was a son that every father and mother would, would love to have. Always obedient, always willing to help, no complaining, no whining. Yes, Mother Mary knew that her son was special. Mother Mary knew that her son came to deliver his people out of their misery. But that is what the angel had told both Mary and Joseph. And here was misery, was there not? A terrible misery and shame. Her son came to remove misery and shame. And so she moved up to her son and said, they have no wine. Perhaps Mary was actually waiting for her son to reveal himself as the Messiah, which she knew he was. Perhaps she was now using the opportunity to get her son into action, prodding her son, come on now, son. Now is the opportunity for you to show who you really are. That was the Lord Jesus not happy with his mother mixing in his affairs. And yet the Lord Jesus does not take it ill of his mother. For he knows she cannot yet fully comprehend his mission on the earth. Even though she does not understand, the Lord Jesus continues to show respect and honor to his earthly mother. Despite the vast difference of wisdom and understanding that now already existed between them. So the Lord Jesus replies, why do you involve me? What does this have to do with me? You ask me to deliver this couple out of their temporary earthly misery. For I didn't come here as a miracle worker, 
I did not come to just deliver people out of their temporary earthly misery. No, why do you involve me? I came to deliver people from their sins and misery, from the sorrow and grief that they brought upon themselves because of their sin. Yes, both temporal, but more so eternally. The Lord Jesus then added, my hour has not yet come. In later chapters of John, we could read it a number of times that the hour or time of the Lord Jesus had not yet come. For example, in chapter 7, his brothers urged him to show himself openly who he was and what he could do. But the Lord also replied to them that his time had, yet, had not yet come. Several times the Jews tried to arrest him, but each time they could not. And then we hear the reason why. Because his hour had not yet come. But then, during the week before he died on the cross, he said that his hour had come. In John 12, verse 23, the Lord Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the night of his passion, the Lord Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Mary wanted her Son to seize the moment of opportunity for her Son to grasp the opportunity to show himself who he really was. But her son said, no, no, this is not my hour. He would show his glory and his power fully at a different time and in a different way. He would show it by dying on the cross and rising again. Mother Mary did not argue with her son. By that time, she knew that her son's wisdom far exceeded hers. He was not like her. He was from the earth and a sinner. He was from above and sinless. Thus Mary left her son to deal with the matter at hand according to his own discretion and wisdom and simply told the servant, do whatever he tells you. And so we come to the second point, the sign. It appears that the Lord Jesus was not insensitive to the predicament at hand. However, the Lord Jesus responds to need at hand in his own way. So those who are given to see might see that the glory of the Lord had come among them, full of grace and truth to be worshipped and to be praised. Now it had become a custom among the Jews to have large stone jars at their entrance of the wedding hall. These jars were filled to the brim with water before the guests arrived. You see, the Jews had added additional laws of cleansing, ceremonial washing, Rites of purification. No one was allowed to eat and drink without the ceremonial washing. It's, of course, good to wash your hands before you eat. But the scribes and the Pharisees had made this a spiritual matter. They said that a person sins if he does not submit himself to a ceremonial washing before he sits down to eat and drink. And you would not want to put a, a damper on the wedding feast, would you? You wouldn't want to bring the wrath of God on you and, and the wedding couple by not being ceremonially clean, would you? Doesn't it have become a custom at every wedding feast to have jars of water at the entrance of the wedding hall? There, a servant would draw out some water and other jars and pour it over your hands. Only then were you allowed to enter the wedding hall. Only then were you considered clean, ceremonially clean. Now, there were six large jars at the entrance to the wedding hall. Each hold about 20 to 30 gallons of water. It's about 75 to about 115 liters of water. 
there must have been a considerable number of guests at this wedding feast for the Lord Jesus told the servants to fill the jars, plural, with water. And then we are told that the servants filled the jars to the brim, that is, as full as possible. Thus, there were now 120 to 180 gallons of water, but 450 to about 700 liters of water, which when all of it would be turned into wine, that is an enormous amount of wine. One commentator calculated that it would, could serve 2,004-ounce glasses. However, no one knew what the Lord Jesus was doing. That became apparent once a servant brought a scoop full of liquid to the master of the banquet upon the Lord Jesus' request. And when the master tasted it, it didn't taste like water. It was wine. The Lord Jesus had changed that water into wine and it tasted delicious in the mouth of the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet did not know from where the wine had come. The servants knew, but apparently they didn't say anything. Neither did the master of the banquet ask the servants, for it was not the business of the servants to organize the wine. That was the business of the bride and the bridegroom. The MC, the master of the banquet, is responsible to make sure that this wedding is a joyous one. Thus he was delighted that not only was there now sufficient amount of wine, but especially that this wine tasted better than the first wine. And so he confronted the bridegroom and complimented the bridegroom on this arrangement. He took the bridegroom aside and said, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And that translation says, it says this way, you have saved the best till now, or you have saved the best for the last. In other words, the first wine was delicious, but the last wine was even better, it was super delicious. Now, we know that in Jewish culture, it's known for much wine drinking. And the Lord Jesus even added to it by changing so much water into wine. But when we read, when the people had drunk freely, that does not suggest excessive drinking or drunkenness. For from various parts of Scripture, it is clear that excessive drinking and drunkenness is a sin forbidden by God. The Apostle Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 6, no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So here is not a condoning of excessive drinking, but a condoning of enjoying oneself. For wine does gladden the heart of man, and yet with a limit. For when there's no limit, there is no gladness. What does the text then mean by when people have drunk freely? It means that when the people had sufficient amount of drink, their taste buds in their mouth were dulled, numbed by the alcohol. And that is why often the inferior wine was served later since they couldn't tell the difference anyways. It appeared that the master of the banquet himself had not drunk too much wine yet. For him to notice that the wine was of greater quality than the first wine. Now that was the miracle that the Lord Jesus performed at this wedding feast. And Apostle John calls this miracle a sign. But this sign can only be understood with the gift of faith. And so we come to the last point. Yes, signs are important. We live by signs all the time, don't we? 
A farmer looks to the sky to see if it's, if it's time to sow his field or to, or to harvest his field. We drive on the road and we see all kinds of signs, all kinds of billboards trying to instill into us to buy this and to go there. We have traffic signs. Without them, there would be chaos. A sign points to something that lies ahead. The sign is not the thing itself, but points us to that of which the sign speaks. John calls this deed of the Lord Jesus of changing the water into wine a sign. And their translation calls it a miraculous sign. It is indeed miraculous because it's not a natural sign, neither a sign itself nor to that of which it speaks. It is not natural that water suddenly turns into wine. The fact that the Lord Jesus could do that and that he did do that reveals who he is. For only God can work beyond the boundaries of science and physics, beyond the boundaries of natural law that he himself had placed in creation so all things would run in good harmony and in good order. Thus, this miraculous sign reveals that the Lord Jesus was indeed the Son of God. This sign, therefore, revealed his glory, that he is indeed the one and only who had come from the Father. Now we are told again that the Lord Jesus performed this miracle at Cana in Galilee, that he gave the sign in Cana in Galilee. We're told a second time in Cana. The Lord Jesus had therefore reached out to those who are rejected, who feel rejected by society, and yet few respond, responded to him. In fact, we are told that only, only the disciples put their faith in the Lord Jesus upon seeing this glory of their Lord. We are told that the servants who had brought the drink to the master of the feast also knew from where this new wine had come. But they did not come to faith. They did not see the glory of he who stood before them, who had done this miraculous deed, who delivered this happy couple out of their potential misery, delivered them from a humiliation on the marriage even before the marriage began. At this point of time, only the disciples, by the grace of God, are given the gift of faith to understand of what kind of leader he was, to whom they had just joined themselves. Just what kind of person they had just begun to follow. It was important that they, first of all, must see and believe that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Savior of the world, that Jesus is the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And yet, it is an ever-widening circle of true believers, true followers. For prior to this miracle, we only heard of Nathaniel professing his faith in the Lord Jesus. Now we are told that all the disciples put their faith in Christ. And having firmly rooted his disciples in their faith in him, Lord Jesus can now move forward in his ministry and in due time bring many more to believe in him so that they too may enjoy life fully, seeing and believing Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. The brothers said there's more to this first miracle, this first sign. For it is not a coincidence that this first miracle took place at a wedding feast. Also not that the Lord Jesus used the things the Jews used for their ritual ceremonial cleansing, by which he turned the water into wine. This first miracle is assigned to the very fact that he was indeed the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. 
This sign pointed to our greatest need and misery. The wine was what the bridal party needed so badly in order to do away with a potential long-lasting misery and in order to enjoy a wonderful wedding celebration for wine gladdens the heart of man. And wine, as a reference to Christ's blood, is what we need so badly in order to do away with the potential long-lasting misery of everlasting life of damnation and hell. Wine, Christ's blood, is what we need in order to enjoy a wonderful wedding celebration with our Heavenly Father. Christ's shed blood gladdens the heart of every man who believes in him. No wine, no rejoicing, said the rabbis. But the scripture says, no Christ, no shedding of his blood, no rejoicing. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, says Hebrews 9. If the Lord gives us wine at our Lord's supper tables, it symbolizes Christ's shed blood. There can be no true rejoicing without believing in Christ's shed blood. But he said, only disciples put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Yes, they still had a lot to learn. After all, the Lord Jesus was just beginning his earthly ministry. And the Holy Spirit also had not yet been poured out. Yet as Christ continues his ministry, first here on this earth, and then later from out of heaven, through his servants whom he sends out through all, throughout the whole earth, his glory will be revealed in ever-widening circles. And many will come to believe in him and be saved from their misery. And we, brothers and sisters, may be among that number. Only out of grace alone. By grace, the disciples put their faith in the Lord Jesus. By grace, other Jews will later put their faith in the Lord Jesus. By grace, the gospel has been preached to us, to you, and to me. By grace, the gift of faith has been granted to us through the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Being born again by the Holy Spirit of Christ to a new life, gives us joy and happiness, gladness and rejoicing. It is all by the grace of God, brothers and sisters. He gives to his own to see and to believe. True faith, the gift of faith. But there is still more to this miracle. For brothers and sisters, it should also not escape our notice that the Lord Jesus used those stone jars for the Jewish rites of the purification to do this sign. With their many gallons of water through this ritual ceremonial washing, the Jews thought that they could make themselves clean, that they could make themselves acceptable to God. But the Lord Jesus was in essence saying to them, no, you cannot purify yourself. You cannot make yourself acceptable to God. And so the Lord Jesus took those very huge water jars, the very jars which represented man's pathetic attempt to make himself acceptable to God and uses them for a sign. A sign which points to how he and only he can cleanse us from all our sins. And only he can give us true joy and true comfort in this life and the life to come. And he gives us life in abundance. For his blood is sufficient to pay for all our sins, great and small, public and those hidden in our hearts, when we confess our sins. You see, he bore the wrath of God to the brim. He drank that bitter drink of suffering to the very last drop so you and I can rejoice and be happy. Yes, the Lord Jesus had shown his glory there in Cana in Galilee, but he will show it again even fully when he will die on the cross. It is for those who are miserable, 
It's those who feel unworthy. Those who are, are broken and contrite of heart. Lord Jesus was made to drink that sour wine on the cross. He emptied the bitter cup, the cup of wrath that his father gave him to drink right to the bitter end, to death, to death on the cross. But brother and sister, he rose again. He rose from the dead. And this way he shows his glory. So brother and sister, what we need to see here is not the, the miracle of, of changing water into wine, but the greatest miracle of all that he changed our eternal death to eternal life out of grace alone by his resurrection, death and resurrection. Yes, his disciples saw his glory through this relatively small miracle. Nevertheless, by the grace of God, it was granted to them to believe. But brothers and sisters, you and I may behold the glorious one, our Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead through the gift of faith. He changed our eternal death to eternal life. Believe in him, and it will be well with you. No, things will not yet be perfect. There will be terrible struggles on this earth while we remain on this earth. But Christ will fill our emptiness. He will be there during our sorrows, our pain, our hurts, our struggles caused by our sins. He's right beside us. He will take away the reason for sadness and give you reason for gladness, for abundant joy. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit he will work out a continual renewal of life in our lives, affecting us to become his glorious bride together with all the saints. Yes, together with all the saints, we look forward to the eternal marriage feast of the Lamb. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, will then usher us, his bride, into the banquet hall because of the cleansing he had worked out in our lives through his shed blood on Golgotha. Because he drank that sour wine, he gives us wine at our Lord's supper tables and remembrance of him to comfort us and strengthen us and encourage us. And he continues to give us that wine until he will give us new wine at the eternal kingdom of his Father. Because he emptied the cup of wrath, he gives us the cup of joy today for us to enjoy until he can give us the cup of complete and full joy upon his return. Yes, the Lord Jesus has said, that he will drink the new wine of eternal joy with us in the kingdom of his Father. You see, he saved the best for the last. The best wine for the last. For his own marriage feast. The heavenly marriage feast of the Lamb. And so Lord Jesus did that first sign at the marriage feast. And from that marriage feast, he is working towards the great marriage feast of the Lamb. Yes, today, you and I may rejoice in the joy of salvation worked out for us in his blood. And it can only get better despite hardships, despite struggles. In this, as we face much wickedness and immorality in this world around about us. But the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, has saved the best for the last with him in heavenly glory. And you know what? This best will last forever. Praise God. Amen.